Welcome birders, this is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Birding is what I did this past weekend. Ken Brown and I, good birding buddy, who's my first guest on the podcast way back in episode number two, uh, Ken Brown and I just got back from leading a trip to the coast. You know, during COVID, our ABC Birding Club has not had a whole lot of big field trips. We kind of kept it pared back a little bit, but we're starting to feel a lot more comfortable. And Ken and I decided we would resurrect one of his old class field trips to the coast. And it was so uh, popular, so many people wanted to sign up that we kind of split, made a two- two two-day trips out of a three-day trip for us. We uh, headed down on Saturday, met everybody, uh, got out Saturday, and then Sunday, the pe- more people joined us. We had a really big group on Sunday, and then the people from Saturday went home, and we stayed over and birded Monday, kind of repeating a lot of what we did on Saturday. Uh, so it was pretty big field trip for us. We had a really good trip. Uh, By the coast, we mean Ocean Shores and Westport area here in Washington. And we had a nice weekend. On Saturday, uh, we did the southern part of the trip on uh, to Westport and and Tokeland uh, and just had a nice time. We uh, had a little time to kill before high tide at Bottle Beach. And so we went to the Hoquiam sewer ponds and fog was pretty heavy and we didn't find a whole lot. Uh, but got to the uh, Bottle Beach area just before high tide, midday, and it was a nice showing of birds. Nothing that special, uh, but had a nice showing of birds. Battle fog, again, a little bit more. Headed south to Tokeland. Tokeland is a little peninsula uh, in Pacific County, Washington, uh, which is well known for its wintering population of willets. Willets are a tough bird to get here in Washington, and a, a group of western willets spends the winter at Tokeland. So we got there and got the willets easily. And there's also a big flock of godwits that's there, a big flock of marble godwits. We thought we had 350, 400 birds, maybe more. And going through them, there has been a bar-tailed godwit at Tokeland. Uh, this winter, spotted by a number of observers, and we're looking through this flock and looking through this flock, and we get on our bird. And it's a little bit smaller and a little bit paler and has a bigger eyebrow stripe, and, and we figure it's our marble, it's our uh, Bartel Godwit. And, and then uh, we watch it, and it takes flight, and we notice it's just something's odd. It's got this big white band at the base of the tail and a black tail and it took us a while to figure out that we were seeing a Hudsonian godwit, a really unusual bird for Washington. I think only the second Hudsonian godwit for me in Washington and the first one in a long, long time. And the kind of funny story with Ken and I saw the the first time I saw one with uh, some old friends, Bob and Georgia Ramsey, long since uh, deceased, uh, but they were superb birders. And I remember telling Ken after we found that godwit, thank goodness there's one godwit that's easy to identify with that black and white tail. Doesn't, you know, it's really distinctively different than our marble godwit and our bar tail godwit. So, boy, I'll recognize that if I see it again. But sure enough, didn't. Took a long time. Ken finally figured out what it was even though we all got great, great looks and great pictures. So that was fun. And uh, a prior guest on the, on the show, Shep Thorpe, let us know by text that uh, there was a sharp-tailed sandpiper back at the Hoquiam sewer ponds. So after finishing up with Hoakland, we dashed back to the sewer ponds and got great looks at a sharp-tailed sandpiper, which is, again, a tough bird to find here in Washington. So a really successful Saturday. Sunday got met with a bigger group and we're traipsing around about 24, 25 people. 
peoples. A, a big group went to ocean shores, again fought fog in the morning, but got nice looks at a big flock of black turnstones with one rock, bur- uh, rock sandpiper and a few uh, surfbirds mixed in at the jetty. Got distant looks at some uh, sooty shearwaters and, and just a nice variety of birds and had a great day birding around ocean shores. Wrapped up the day, though, at a place called Bill Spit. Got there right after high tide. Tide's just going out, and as the tide went out, uh, a big flock of shorebirds, maybe maybe a thousand or more shorebirds came in. A nice mix of western sandpipers and dunlin, uh, but at least 15 or 20, maybe more red knots mixed in. You know, red knots are very uh, brick red in the spring, but in the winter... Uh, they're all gray. They're called gray knots in in Europe. Uh, a, pro, a good name because probably most of the year they are gray. And we got good looks at those and uh, puzzled over a shorebird. We still haven't figured out what it was. It was really, really distant uh, and got good looks at a bunch of gulls and just had a nice, a nice time there. And then Monday, uh, I tried again for the sharp-tailed sandpiper for the people who hadn't seen it on Saturday. And uh, did not have much luck with that. Really weren't sure we got on it. But wrapped up Monday with a nice look at a Pacific Golden Plover back at Bottle Beach. Bottle Beach is the area now as the sands shift uh, from uh, decade to decade in uh, Byron Basin and Grays Harbor area. Bottle Beach is the last place to fill up as the tide comes in. And it's really a tough place to time the tide. Uh, you want to be there at about a eight and a half, nine foot tide, I think. Uh, but if, if the wind's blowing in, it can be way sooner than that. And we were a little late getting there on Monday. Uh, the wind was blowing more and tide came in a lot quicker. And uh, most of the birds were gone. But there were only about 30 or 40 uh, uh, plovers. One of the first ones we got on was a beautiful, very cooperative Pacific Golden Plover. So that was fun. We heard it call, saw it fly, got great pictures. It was just a terrific experience. So anyway, back and as you can tell, kind of energized from a really good weekend of birding with friends. So that was super fun. Well, birding with friends is great, but birding with your kid is pretty great too. I had some good experiences birding my children, but they never really caught the bug to be a, a, a you know, kind of passionate birder. Well, my guests on this episode are Matthew and Levi Radford. They are a father-son team of birding. Uh, they have a uh, father and son birding Facebook page, and uh, they are really into birding. It was really fun to talk to a father and son who are both passionate about birding and are from Oklahoma. So help me welcome Matthew and his son, Levi Radford, to the Bird Banner Podcast. Matthew, Levi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this with me today. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it is not, in my experience, it is not common, and you guys are incredibly lucky to be a father-son passionate birding team. That is super cool. Uh, I do not know many uh, many birders who've been lucky enough to have one of their kids be uh, as interested or more interested than they are in birding. So how did that work out? Tell me you guys' story. Go ahead, Levi. So, um, of course, before I was born, my dad was always interested in birds. Um, we had chickens. Um, and when I was growing up, we always had chickens. And he had chickens before I was born. And he was always really interested in nature and ecology. And um, I think I always had an innate love for nature and animals in general. But when I was around seven or eight, I saw his interest for birds. And I said, I wanted to be into birds. I, like, made it, I just made it a point I was going to be into birds. And then I just, I just kind of did. And I always tagged along on his adventures to go find birds and just kind of grow up loving them. 
Very cool. Matthew, so you were a, a birder of sorts before Levi got into it. I was. I really, as far back as being a kid on the farm in Idaho, I had a real innate love for birds, even when there weren't the resources we have now. And I can share a little bit of that story if you'd like. Totally. Um, again, I grew up in southeast Idaho on a, a small farm, cows and barley and alfalfa. But I had that innate love for birds. I would sit at the farmhouse window in the fall with a single hummingbird feeder, get four species of hummingbirds, saw a calliope. I remember the first yeah. time a male calliope came in. Um, even on, And we had some great birds there. Uh, great, great owls come down into the farm in the winter. Uh, Sora rails, the hairy woodpeckers, a lot of evening growth speaks in the winter. So um, I occasionally probably drove family members crazy. I'd steal all the the bread to make little makeshift bird feeders. But I just, yeah, I just, I innately loved birds growing up. Uh, but there weren't the resources. You know, we have so many resources now to travel and eBird and everything. It wasn't until I got into college and got a, I got an ecology degree. But in college, I, I teamed up with a great professor, Dr. Charles Trost, who's a corvid ethologist, does great work with Matt, or did, he's retired now, but he really pushed me forward to learn a lot more about birds in the Intermountain West. Um, but even still, there was that period of time after that that I just kind of fell out of it for a couple of decades, uh, school, and then employment, raising small children. I really got out of birding. Life got in the way. And life got in the way. But then really, as Levi said, he got to that age where he was old enough to do it, and he had this innate love for it. So in about 2013, you know, he was a good reason to get into it again, along with an bro older brother that got into it. So I had a big hiatus, and I, I forgot a lot, but got into it again in 2013 with Levi when we were spending time in Washington, Montana, and, and just fell in love with it again, and it's all history, as they say. Since 2013, we've done a lot of birding. Very cool. Uh, so, uh, Matthew, what you said you uh, got an education in e ecology, I think you said. What do you? What's your yeah. day job? What do you do for work? Now, now I've had a. It was a ecology degree. Was really like a a biology degree on steroids, kind of. Uh, but I really loved um, biology lab work, and currently I do grossing and histology at a pathology clinic. Oh, very cool. So, which I love. So I love working in, it's not for everybody, but because you're, it's a, it's a grossing pathology tissue job, but I love it. And there's a great pathology group of physicians here in a broken arrow that I work for and work with. And it's, it's a good deal. I've had a variety of jobs in the biology realm, microbiology, um, Q, uh, QC work and all that. So, but it's been mm -hmm. good. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a biology nerd, lab nerd at heart. Very cool. And Levi, you're in college now in university? Yes, I attend Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma at the moment. Okay. Uh, now, you're both living in Oklahoma now, it sounds like. So you moved yeah. from uh, the Idaho area down there? We were actually in, at the time, we'd moved around a bit. We were in Washington State over in Wenatchee for 10 years before we moved here. Oh, okay. So you guys yeah. know Eastern Washington well. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. In my haunts, I'm from, I live in Tacoma and uh, Eastern Washington is, you know, uh, you got to go there if you're going to bird Washington. There's two different states here. You know, we have the, the wet side of the mountains and the, the intermountain west sort of. So, yeah. 
Very cool. Uh, so Levi, what is uh, the birding community like at the university for you? Um, although I haven't really done a whole lot of birding since I've um, joined the university, it has a pretty robust birding uh, community, especially with a number of professors at the university that are really engaged um, in the local birding community, along with the Payne County Audubon Society, which the water is a part of. Yeah. And so I'm sorry, you said you go to Oklahoma State? That's correct. And and uh, I'm sorry, where is that? It's in Stillwater, Oklahoma, in central Oklahoma. Central Oklahoma. Okay, cool. Uh, it's a, I'm sure it's a pretty big university. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good size. And and what year are you there? I'm a freshman. First I just year. joined the university. So you're, I mean, you haven't done much. You've only been there a month. I right. Mean, it's, uh, you're just learning the way to the toilet now here. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> good. Uh, sounds like you guys got out owling this uh, last night. Did I, it was the last night of the night before? Did I see uh, you sent me an eBird uh, list from that? Yes. Very cool. Yeah, Levi. Just, what was that like? Um, it was really, it was really fun. Um, I personally in my life have not had the success I've wanted to with owls just overall. And just <laughs> this year, I've kind of turned my luck around. And only just within the last few weeks, I finally got Eastern Screech Owl as a lifer, which was kind of shocking how late, how long it took me. But just last night, we were able to uh, hike the trails at Lake Bixoma here in uh, this whole area. And we heard a number of eastern screech owls trilling and whinnying, along with a great horned owl as well, and even a, a pretty uh, fun record of eastern whippoorwill that we heard, which is pretty late because it's yeah. really not very common in this area regardless. We found one and in October. And really not, not singing this time of year, too. Yeah. yeah, right. We were we were pretty uh we were hoping we might hear one because we'd heard one earlier in the year, but we managed to hear it and get some audio of it, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. So Eastern Whipper does Mexican Whipper well too. Where's the I, I forget where the uh you know the cutoff is for those two species. I I, I guess I would have thought you'd have had Mexican Whipper well in Oklahoma, but I haven't looked at a range map. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, they in fact we got Mexican Whipper well this spring. We went down to Big Bands. Uh-huh. We dipped on Kalima Warbler. We, we're going to go back, but we got Mexican Whippoorwill in a big band. They they kind of sneak up from Mexico through that big band area. Mm-hmm. And then Eastern get into Eastern Texas, but just just not quite as far as big band to the West. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know where the cutoff for that. Cool. So, yeah, yeah my... Uh... Yeah, my whippoorwills have been few and far between. I grew up in Maine on a little camp in Maine. And when I was a kid, they were just part of the early summer evening, you know, soundscape. They were just everywhere. And I've been back there for, you know, I grew up there and I go back almost every summer and they just are not, they just are not there anymore. So they've definitely lost some range around there. And I talked to a couple of old birders there said, oh gosh, no, we haven't had them in 20 or 30 years. So Good on you guys, and yeah. uh, and screech owls. We we used to have screech owls twenty years ago. They were con- you know they were easy to find each year at least in in Western Washington. But boy, we just don't have them anymore. I mean, they're very yeah. difficult. Sadly, that's the story with a few of our eastern birds and western birds. Is I, yeah, it, it, that's a sad uh, commentary. I guess some of these birds are getting more difficult to find as we as we lose habitat. Yeah. And we think that the barred owls out here, that we really, we didn't used to have barred owls. There were no barred owls here 30 years ago. I mean, they were just didn't exist here. And now they're the most common owl. Uh, And, uh, you know, they, they prey on uh, 
Western screech owls. So especially chicks. Oh. So we think that uh, barred owls, uh, you, know, you hear a lot of uh, barred owls in the you know, northern spotted owl. They're invading their territories and driving, you know, probably going to be the main other than the big habitat issues and, you know, that have gone on for decades, they're going to be the demise of the Northern Spotted Owl probably, but uh, they certainly haven't done any good for our screech owls either. And that's really interesting. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, just, just last night, we were actually having a conversation about different competing species, um, particularly barred and spotted owl and also Townsend's and hermit warbler. Mm -hmm. And it kind of brought up a good topic just in general as a, as a pair that, have a kind of a generational divide we have noticed a lot of differences in how we birded when he was my age just the mm -hmm. differences in what species are common and how many total birds exist in the country it's pretty alarming to see what differences that we've noticed it is shocking for us for me the the biggest thing is shorebirds i mean just because i i live in washington we have uh, you know, Grace Harbor and Bowerman Basin, one of the big staging areas for migrating birds, especially in spring. And it used to be that we would go to Bowerman Basin and we would see half a million shorebirds, maybe more, uh, just immense, uncountable numbers of shorebirds. And now you go, if you see 10,000, it's a good day. Wow. Uh, so it's just dramatic difference. So yeah, get them while you can. They might not be here when you're an old man, Levi. Right, right. <laughs> if any of us are here when you're an old man, yeah, who knows? Uh, anyway, uh, I saw from your profile that you've gotten a chance to travel quite a bit. I didn't realize that you were from the Pacific Northwest. I saw that you, you have lists uh, in Washington and Oregon, uh, Idaho and Oregon area. Uh, where else have you guys traveled to? It sounds like you've been to Big Bend, one of my favorite places. Go ahead, Levi, then I'll chime in. Yeah, so... Um... We've been a number of places, particularly in kind of the western half of the United States. But the main spots that we that we took particular interest in were, of course, Oklahoma, where we are now, um, northeast Montana, and also northwest North Dakota, uh, southeast Arizona, and southern Texas, along with the Pacific Northwest. Um, that we've been in a various various places throughout Idaho and and Washington. Okay, and you get a pretty good. I mean, you get a modest number of eastern birds, at least uh, in in, in parts of Oklahoma, don't you? Yeah, I'd say most yeah. of the birds we get are ones that are from the eastern United States or across the entire lower 48. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's funny. I think of Oklahoma as being pretty far west, but it's really not that. It's kind of right in the middle. It is. And the, the beauty of Oklahoma, it really is to, I mean, it's several different states. In the panhandle, you do get antelope rattlesnakes, burrowing owls, down in the southeast corner, crocodiles, or excuse me, not crocodiles, alligators, roseate spoonbills. And then if you go over by the Arkansas border, you can get a good smattering of truly eastern warblers, cerulean warbler, worm-eating warbler. So it's a complete, it's a good collection of east and west in the state. Yeah. I bet you've got, you guys have pretty good state lists then if you get around the state. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, are you guys into listing? I, you know, some people listers and some people, you know, consider that a bad name. And, you know, I, I just say, do what you do. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know what my state list is. I know it's probably robust. I keep a life list. And then I personally just want to, I want to get all at least the North American warblers so I kind of, I keep a list of the perlids and my life list. I don't really, you know, eBird does it for us. So we can go check and see what our numbers are, but I'm not a, a big lister per se. I guess 
Levi's kind of the same. But. I'd say we always we always make sure we keep the list when we go birding, but our main sure. focus isn't usually on getting county ticks or, or or just finding a total number of species in a given area. It's usually about more the experience we have while birding. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you guys have any uh, uh, trips planned for this coming winter or spring? Well, our, um, our next trip on the, sorry, I'll, I'll let you talk. Oh, we need to redeem ourselves for missing Kalima Warbler next or last year. So we're going to go a bit earlier this year, back to Big Band, get Kalima Warbler, Lucifer Hummingbird, a few of those. So that's a big one. Then what comes to mind for you, Levi? I'd say overall, I mean, a more long-term goal is to finally go on a, a pelagic trip. I've never been personally on a, a pelagic trip to the, either the Gulf of Mexico or especially maybe Southern California. Um, I know you, you dad have been on a trip, a project trip in the, in the Northeast in Maine. Right. But I, I have yet to, so that's, that's a long-term goal that will probably boost my life list a little more as well. Well, I'll give you guys a, 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 a tip. Uh, in my opinion, uh, the absolute coolest trip I've ever been on is a five-day pelagic out of San Diego. It's on the boat called mm. the Searcher, and it's a terrific bargain. I mean, as I mean, as as trips go, it's tra- it's expensive to travel, you know, hotels and rental cars yeah. and everything. But uh, a friend of mine and I went on this this past fall. It's always it always leaves on Labor Day. Uh, it's a Monday. It leaves on Labor Day on Monday, gets back on the Friday after. And you have to sign up for it two years in advance because it's always full. Uh, but uh, it is just a f- spectacular trip. You see whales and porpoises and it's uh, comfortable. And it was like $1,500 for five days on a boat oh, wow. with with fat, with you know g- excellent food and comfortable berths and top 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 guides and just i mean you can't take a trip like that with a rent car and hotels for five days for much less than that uh so it's a great bargain and one of the best pelagic bird if you want to do pelagic birding in comfort warm weather you know on a nice big boat uh without a crowd it's it's just unbelievably spectacular but you've got the north carolina trips and you've got the you know san diego and the san francisco area and westport out of washington there are a lot of really really good pelagic companies going uh but uh yeah don't go on the gulf of mexico that's not uh, i've heard pelagic birding out of the gulf of mexico is you know three birds and 500 miles covered i mean just just (laughs) no there's nothing out there that's good to know so what what stands out as that pelagic you went on in California? What were your big birds that you were most excited that you got? You know, I had done that trip once before about five or six years ago. So my big reason for going on it, besides wanting to go again because it was so fabulous, was to bring my really good birding buddy on it who had never been on a pelagic trip out of uh, the San Diego area. Uh, and so we had four species of boobies. We had red-footed and blue-footed and brown and Nazca boobies. Uh, we had lots and lots and lots of shearwaters. We had hundreds of buller shearwaters. We had lots and lots of black-vented shearwaters. We had uh, and we had two species of uh, Teratroma petrels. Uh, we had cooks and we had Hawaiian. Uh, and all of the all of the alcids, you know, the the scripts and Creveries and Guadalupe, uh, Merlets, and it just it's too cool. I mean, you just it's it's just yeah. 
something awesome. I think everyone who, who wants, who has any interest in pelagic birding should just get on the list for that a couple of years out and just do it. Yeah. yeah. It's really, really good. <laughs> good. Uh, so uh, you want to go on a pelagic trip, Levi? That'll be exciting. Do you get seasick? <laughs> or do you know? Uh, I I don't have a huge tendency to get motion sickness. So we'll, we'll have to find out though. <laughs> yeah. Well, that trip is a nice one in that regard too. It's yeah, you know, not an issue on this, a little bit bigger boat and it's, you know, late summer and way down in the you know, South Pacific. So it's, it's pretty calm. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, Levi, uh, is there a, an active young birding, uh, uh, organization or a community in Oklahoma that you've been involved in at all? I haven't necessarily been a part of a, like a, a young birder community per se. I ran into a good number of young birders while out and about birding that, um, you know, reflect just the same level of knowledge and and just in just general just knowledge and super friendly as as all the other birders I've met. But I haven't really been a part of a young birder community, and that's kind of a good a good topic. Is that it's kind of not not to say that birding is a dying breed, but it it's definitely more popular among people that are middle aged or older. So that's something that I'm passionate about is trying to teach people around me and my peers that are around my age about, you know, the, yeah. the importance of nature and, and such. I bet you'll be surprised at university that there's a, there are other young birders at your university. I'm sure you know, every university has young birds. This it's a, uh, I'm, I'm really optimistic about the birding community in the pl places I've been, Washington and California and Maine and other places there, there are a, a, lots of really good young birders out there. So, you know, keep your eyes open. Yeah, I'm definitely excited about getting involved with birding um, at Oklahoma State because a lot. Of, I know a lot of young people uh, through Facebook and such that are birders mm -hmm. there, and I'm excited to, you know, go out birding with them and meet and meet people in the community. For sure, Eva. Do you have any idea what you're going to study? Um, currently, my major is zoology pre-vet, and I'm part of the early admission program to go to their vet school. Oh, in, good for you. in four years time so <clears throat> those are fabulous uh opportunities when you can don't have to stress as much <laughs> over <laughs> just getting into med school or vet school the, those uh the programs that i'm a family doctor i know that it was a you know it's a big uh big deal getting into med school getting into vet school not an easy thing and to to get it now now Obviously, you have to perform in college. You can't be a total, right. you know, total uh, <laughs> slug bucket and not study. But uh, your odds are good. Your odds are good. Good for you. Right. Very cool. Uh, so uh, if each of you had to say, uh, Matthew, what about birding most excites you? What 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 really gets you going? What what uh, what's your big passion? I, I'm going to use an example that kind of got me thinking about this. When in back in 2013, Levi was just. I guess, I mean, barely over 10 years old. I guess he was nine or 10. We were driving with the windows down in the pickup in eastern Montana, listening to grasshopper sparrows, uh, clay-colored sparrows, great birds we got up there, uh, lark buntings. And he was listening out the window. I could tell he was listening to something or for something. I said, what are you, what are you listening to? And he said, I'm just trying to hear something I've never heard before. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was so profound. And that's what we do a lot. I love finding and discovering those things we just haven't discovered before. So obviously a lifer fits that category. But on top of that, we love to go out like we did last night and find birds that no one has found in a particular area. So 
we found an October record of eastern whipper whale in an area previously unreported. And we found what seems to be a pretty good population of eastern screech owls in an area previously unreported. Uh, we did the same for some Leconte sparrows overwintering in, in winter. So I really love that, just that finding something, even if it's a common bird, but finding a new way to discover it that other people haven't discovered before, if that makes sense. Yeah, being a pioneer. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So, How about you, Levi? What gets you most revved up? I'd say for me, the thing that does it for me is almost being there with the birds and feeling like you're not even there. I think my first example was we were in the mountains of eastern Idaho during June, and we, it was like a, a camping and fishing trip, but I was wandering around these hillsides just littered with breeding white crowned sparrows, and I just was there with them, and it just felt like I wasn't even there. I was just like a part of their world. And just in general, and I had the same feeling last night with when we went owling and heard all of these eastern screech owls, uh, presumably communicating with each other that it's almost like I'm just like a, a passive spectator in their world. I feel like I'm not, I, I'm not, when it's not about me, but it's about them. And I can just feel like the, just that feeling of the birds doing their own thing and me just being there is really, that's just a huge, is a huge part of it for me. Yeah, it is fun. Yeah, getting out and just feeling like you're uh, just part of the world, but not the not the uh, unlike humans usually dominate the world. Maybe not for a, that moment in time. Very nice. Right. <laughs> uh, are either of you really involved in a local Audubon society? I the uh, Tulsa does have a real strong Audubon society. They do some Tuesday events, Saturday events. They've organized great events with. Uh, Prairie Chicken Lex. Uh, a recent one we went on with them was to see a big uh, purple martin roost that was there all week, like tens of thousands of birds. The night before we did the event, they they stopped coming to the roost, but but it was fun to go and 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 talk to the local people. And yeah, it's a, it's a they have a great uh, chapter here. I we listened to your podcast with Zach Poland. Of course, he's an active oh, member. Yeah. And does a, a lot of great things with the, the group. So yeah, yeah, very, very great group here. And cool. then uh, more broadly, Oklahoma Ornithological Society, I should give them a shout out. We interact with them a lot on Facebook and in their groups. I need to join their group. Admittedly, I need to join still. But they're just a wonderful group. A lot of OSU professors, a lot of great people in the mm -hmm. OOS, Oklahoma Ornithological Society. Yeah. Uh, a little shout out for our, I'm on the board of WASP, Washington Ornithological Society. And a, a benefit that we just started last year is pretty fab. Do you guys use Birds of the World, the uh, resource from Cornell? It, a little bit. It is yeah. fabulous. You know, to you yeah. to really use it, you need to have a subscription. Uh, and it's, I think it's $59 a year or oh, something okay. like that for a subscription. But you can join WASP for $25 a year and you get a subscription to birds of the world mm, so nice. you can uh you know if you want to get a a discounted subscription to birds of the world support another local uh state's uh ornithological society you don't have to be from washington to be a wasp member okay <laughs> so if you want birds birds of the world on discount join wasps <laughs> nice we'll need to do we need to do that yeah it birds of the world is so cool if you know when i uh Shout out for Birds of the World. It is fabulous. So you, I used to use it when it was Birds of North America, and then they 
merged with some other organization. Now they have a, a complete monograph on every species in the world. Uh, so you want to know how many eggs a Leconte sparrow lays and how many clutches they have and what they make their nest out of and every little nuance. If it's known, it's in the monograph about the bird. That's a, uh, you know, a uh, university type level person writes up a monograph on every species and it's there and it's updated regularly. It's just, if you have a question about any bird in the world, that's a place to go find it out. That sounds amazing. Yeah. We need, we need to uh, be part of that. Yeah. It's totally cool. Uh, I will send you a link to WASP where you can join. (laughs) We just, uh, we just started that last year. It's been really popular. Oh, Uh, good. Cool. We, We will join actually. Yeah, we we tried to figure a way, you know, was during COVID. I mean, when we're not having monthly meetings, we're doing everything on Zoom meetings. It was just, you know, what's the benefit of being a member of WASP? We tried to find a way to add value, and Cornell offers that as a, you know, the way it works is you can't say how many of our members want Birds of the World. No, you have to buy the subscription for every member of WASP, uh, whether they use it or not, and that way you get a huge discount, and it, it's a great benefit, and it'll. It's oh, good yeah. for every, it's one of those good for everybody, uh, win, win, win sort of things. So Excellent. absolutely cool. Uh, so Levi, uh, you're settling into college. Uh, what is, what's the habitat? What's the terrain about near where your university is? So I'd say around Stillwater, there's a lot of more open grassland in the area. Um, in fact, the, uh, around Stillwater where the university is located is a great spot to find Smith's Longspurs. Um, and there's a lot of cattle in the area too, which I guess to some extent kind of emulate the habitat that longspurs in particular want. But there's also a good amount of deciduous woodland um, and a lot of the Eastern birds that are in the Tulsa area of Oklahoma are also in the Stillwater area um, a little further west. So it's, it's a good mix of deciduous woodland along with the, um, the more grassland type habitat. Yes. Good. Uh, and so, Matthew, does that differ a lot from uh, the Tulsa area, do you think? Um, it, a little bit. It's pretty similar. We, they, they tend to be a little drier, a little more grassland habitat. Um, you get here in Tulsa and a little further east, you get into more extensive stands of eastern deciduous forest. Yeah. So as you head west, the number of warblers you can run into, for example, during migration drops off significantly. But as you head west into salt plains and some of those areas, you get a lot more shorebirds, a better chance at more species of longspurs. You get into the thick-billed longspur, smith's longspur. So, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's but they're about an hour and a half west. But that being said, there's still some habitat there where you can get Kentucky warbler, for example. So... Yeah, but 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 it's yeah, it's different enough. You notice a difference in an eBird list, but but a pretty good overlap. And then, as we head north, we get up into the southern, like a southern tall grass prairie. Even before you get to Kansas and get into uh, greater prairie chicken, in the winter, short-eared owls, long-eared owls, a lot of long spurs. So yeah, it's a really again, it's a really good crossroads for some diverse eastern and western habitats here. Now, I remember you mentioning that you had not been to Oklahoma when you talked to Zach Poland. Have you still not been to, or are you planning on coming to Oklahoma? It's, it's I would, a great place to come in the winter. I would, I am 
trying to figure my winter out for this year. I, you know, in, in Western Washington, yeah, I'm retired. And so I don't have to be here. And in winter in Western Washington, you know, the gray gets old after a while. Uh, we don't get a lot of rain. It just rains every day. Uh, and, uh, and, and so it's just, in my opinion, I'm from Maine where I grew up with seasons, you know, with the sunshine, even in the winter. And, uh, so I, I, you know, a cold sunny place would, you know, be, have some interest to me. So the answer is I have only been to Oklahoma for about a 10 or 15 mile stretch when I was on a, on a fancy chicken trip to Colorado and Kansas. And we, we drove, uh, I think to get. I think lesser prairie chicken is a hard one to get, isn't it? I think to get lesser prairie chicken, we yeah. drove down to Canadian, Texas, where there was a okay. fellow who had a lack and took us out. And we kind of clipped through a like a little snippet of Oklahoma on the way. So I think I have an e-bird list in Oklahoma, but I really haven't birded Oklahoma. So it's uh it's on my list of things, maybe. Yeah. Right. One of one of the things I've done for oh decades, Jerry Cooper, I think it was Jerry Cooper, wrote a this fabulous uh book, How to Find Back in the Days when 650 species in a year was a really good year before eBird and before uh he wrote a book on how to find 650 species in the in the continental in the in the continental you know, in the ABA area in a year on a budget. Uh, and he kind of laid the whole year out of where you should go. And then he put a baker's dozen of extra special trips that you should take. And Oklahoma in the winter made the baker's dozen of special trips. So it's always kind of been in my, yeah, I'd like to go there sometime, but hasn't, hasn't quite uh, hit the cutoff yet. So maybe soon. Yeah, it's uh it's, it can be a hard sell talking to people into coming to Oklahoma in the, in the winter when you can overshoot and go to uh, Florida or something. But, but it really does. It's underrated in the winter. You can see a dozen warb or excuse me, a dozen sparrow species in one day, including Harris's, Leconte's. And you could in one day find four long spurs. It realistically would take you a couple days, but they're all four here. And yeah, it's it's a fun place. Now, granted, we've taken advantage of it because we're here and we're gonna bird close to home when we can, but sure. that's a, it's a fun place. So how far are you from the Gulf Coast of Texas? I mean, you'd said you're into warblers. That's one of my favorite warbler places. Yeah, and have that whole stretch from South Padre Island to High Island is just, oh gosh, so cool in, in the spring. Yeah, we're, we went to High Island back in 2017. It wasn't a particularly heavy warbler year, but we got some great ones, Cape May and Black Bull and, you know, and it, I think it's 12 to 14 hours. So, so you can... If you it's, have a partner, you can drive it in one. It's shot. drivable. It's a long drive, yeah, but it's yeah, drivable. Yep, yeah. yep. It's not bad, and we took advantage of that. So we've been, we've been to High Island, cleared down through Brownsville, and got a lot of good birds along that Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, that that I spent a month in the Lower Rio Grande a couple of the 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 the, the winter before COVID or before we thought it was before COVID at least. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I spent a, a month down there. It was stayed in and uh would we stay in Harland? No, not Harland. And uh, McAllen. I stayed in McAllen yep. and it was just, Oh, one of the highlights. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Really. I, I invited a group of uh, 10 friends from after I'd been there three weeks and felt like I knew my way around. Uh, the first week I, I brought two good birding buddies from Tacoma. We birded the area and kind of learned a way around and then they left and my girlfriend came down and we stayed for a couple more weeks. And then the last week I invited uh, 10 friends down and I got, let it a little tour uh and it was really fun we had a great time it's it's amazing it really is yeah 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 great kiskadees everywhere 
<laughs> you feel like you're not in the United States anymore. Good. Uh, so if somebody wanted to reach out to you guys, Matthew, what's the best way for someone to find you? Well, probably Facebook, Matthew with one T, Matthew G. Radford on Facebook. And then you can also include my email in the notes if you'd like, my Gmail email, and they can just email me. Um, we love, we've hosted a few people traveling through Oklahoma. We love, we love it if people ask questions and help them out here when we can. Very cool. Levi, how should somebody get a hold of you? Just about the same way. I'm pretty active on Facebook. So just my name, Levi Radford on Facebook and my email also, which you um, can do the same you. way as my Perfect. Dad, yeah. I'll put those in in, a, in the notes in a way that you won't get spammed. Uh, so uh, that's good. I try not to put real email addresses that uh, bots can pick up, but uh, I'll get it so that any human will know how to get a hold of you. Uh, so guys, thanks so much for being on the podcast with me today. I really appreciate it. And you guys have a great rest of the fall. Find some more owls and Levi, get get going with that birding community at university. You'll love it. Take will care, do. guys. Nice to Thank see you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner podcast episode with Matthew and Levi Radford, Oklahoma birders. You can always, as, as usual, check in the podcast notes for contact information for the Radfords and also on the blog posts that I post on birdbanner.com with similar information and additional links. So thanks so much for listening. Always, again, fun to hear from a father-son birding team. And if you know of a great father-daughter birding team, thinking about it, I had a great father-daughter birding team on the show. Scott and Sierra Downs. Gosh, what am I thinking about? That was really fun, too. Check out the Scott and Sierra Downs episode. Uh, I'll, again, put a, a link to that episode in the podcast notes. Well, thanks again for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. Good day.